0: You're listening to The Ridge Weekly Podcast. To learn more about Chestnut Ridge Church, visit us online at theridge.church. In a world where the very concept of truth is under attack, we are called upon to know the truth and to be able to defend it. The truth can impact our relationship with God, and it can lead to true freedom. Unfortunately, many in our society no longer value the truth, and they don't know where to turn in order to find it. Listen to this talk from the series, Truth Is— as we seek to know how we can graciously stand firm in the truth as we face those in our society who look to undermine it. Well, good morning. Uh, Before I begin, I wanted to mention that some of you may not be aware of the fact that we have a Ridge app that you can download on your tablet or your phone or whatever. And uh, that includes all the Bible references we use. I think also quotes, if I use special quotes, will be on there. Uh, But that's something I encourage you to download and check it out because it'd be an opportunity for you to really pick up on all the references I use that you might have missed. When I was growing up, my three brothers and I would sometimes during the summertime go to a church camp. It was located in a little bit away from this small town in Ohio called Burton. Uh, Burton is actually so small, it's called a village. I think it only has like 400 and some people that live there. And we would go to this church camp, and it was kind of a humble camp. The facilities were not really that great, but we still had fun. We, you know, we did archery, we went on hikes, we had various uh, outdoor activities. But this particular camp did not even have a real swimming pool. It had a swimming pond. And if you wanted to get to the pond to swim, you had to go along the the wooded area. There was a little path, and you really went back into the woods. If I remember correctly, the pond was about the size that one or two cabins of students could swim at a time, and that was it. And I specifically remember that the bottom of the pond was muddy, and the mud was getting in my toes. It just was a little bit kind of uh, uh, disgusting there. But one day I was swimming there in that uh, swimming pool or pond, whatever you want to call it, and I saw a snake slithering across the water. And up to this point um, in my life, the age I was, the only snake that I knew of that was a water snake was what was called a water moccasin or a cottonmouth, and they're, they're poisonous, venomous. And I thought, I think that's a, I think that's a water moccasin. And so I got out quickly, I went over to the lifeguard, and I pointed to the snake, and he immediately blew his whistle, everyone get out, avoid that area over there, and everyone got out, and then he found a stick, and he just smacked the thing, I mean, he just just killed that snake, and that was kind of the end of it, and then no one was allowed to swim for the rest of the day, as they checked the area, make sure there weren't any more of them. Now, I didn't think much of this story over the years. I haven't thought much of this story. But probably three or four years ago, I was uh, speaking on some occasion. And I wanted to use this story, and I decided to, to check out some of the facts related to the story. Like, I forgot what a water moccasin or cotton mouth, I forgot what they look like. They call, they're called co- cotton mouths, so if they open their mouth, it kind of looks like, I guess, cotton in there. But I wanted to research, what, is this, what does it look like, you know, and, and some more facts about this snake before I told the story. And what I discovered, to my surprise, is that there are no water moccasins in Ohio. It was not a water moccasin. It's not a cotton mouth. Now, I had asked the lifeguard that afterwards, after he killed the snake. I said, what kind was it? And he said it was a water moccasin, but it wasn't, it wasn't the truth. And I realized that for over 40 years, I've been telling a story involving danger. Like, I'm in in this pond, and there's this poisonous snake in there, and I managed to get out and save my life. And I find out it's just a little common garden variety snake. There's nothing wrong with it. It was harmless. Now, I didn't deliberately lie. I was never trying to deceive anyone. But I realized that I held on to something I thought was the truth. And it wasn't for many years. Now I think that's true of all of us. There are things in our lives that we're holding on to as the truth, and we discover at some point maybe it wasn't true after all. I, by the way, last week, somebody um, sent in a little correction, which was I really appreciated. But I love to quote Acts 4.12 and then I assign it to Paul. I say, Paul said in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And someone just pointed out that um, Peter said that, not Paul. All I need now is Mary. I don't know. Got to be a little older. But I had it wrong. And and so we don't always get the truth right. This series is about about the truth. Now, I think we live in interesting times because we have such access to information, and so on the one hand, truth has never been more readily available to us. In fact, when I was preparing for this, I went back online and noticed that the first whole page of sources I looked at indicated that, it, there, again, there are no no poisonous uh, water snakes in Ohio. You've got rattlesnakes, you've got copperheads, but you don't have the cotton mouth. Or the moccasin. Well, if you have six sites in a row and they're reputable, you could pretty much conclude this is the truth. I think we can know the truth about a lot of things, but it's tricky because we also recognize that online there's a lot of false information out there. There's a lot of false news out there. And how can we know what's true and what's not? And it's becoming more and more difficult. Now today, I'd like to talk about a conclusion I arrived at many years ago in my own heart and mind concerning the truthfulness of the Bible. The fact that it's the Word of God that I concluded many, many years ago, in fact, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I were not convinced that in the original manuscripts it was inerrant, it was the Word of God given to us. And I've believed that for years, and there are reasons why. Our faith is not just a blind faith. I mean, sometimes people... Uh, address Christians, and they say, well, you just have blind faith. No, it's not blind. Our faith is informed. It, it, it makes sense. There are reasons why we believe what we do, although I acknowledge it takes some faith. You've got to have some faith to believe the Bible is the Word of God. But, you know, about a year and a half ago, I, I did a talk related to evidence for why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and I mentioned things like prophecy. Bible's filled with hundreds and hundreds of prophecies giving very specific details of things that are going to happen hundreds of years into the future, and they came true. And I argue that only God could do that. Only God has a 100% record of getting the prophecies 100% right all the time. And God's Word is filled with them. And so when you read these prophecies, you'd have to say, well, that's obviously from God here. I talked about the internal consistency in the Bible, how it's uh, 66 different books, but it's just one book, that it was written by over 40 authors, or about 40 authors, over a period of 15 to 1,600 years, and the authors of these books lived in different continents and everything else, and yet it's one book. If you want to know what God is like, he's the same in Genesis as he is in Revelation. If you want to know what people are like, it's the same in Genesis as Revelation. If you want to know what sin's all about, it's the same in Genesis as Revelation or how we get right with God. There's only one way in all the pages of the Bible about how a person gets right with God. It's through faith, specifically faith alone and Christ alone. But this internal consistency... Suggested to me it's true. And then I talked about how Jesus himself believed the Bible was true in the word of God. And he held people accountable for it. And I tend to trust his opinion. He said not one single jot or tittle will pass away. What he was talking about is little marks in the Hebrew language that are so small. And he said every one of those marks for God's word is going to come to pass. Nothing's going to fail. And that was his perspective on the Word of God. I talked about the supernatural nature of the Bible. This one is, is more a subjective thing, but if I ask you to raise your hands, I'm wondering how many of you would agree that when you read the Bible, you're, you, you say, this is not a normal book. This isn't just a good book. There's something about it that has a supernatural quality to it. And then finally, I talked about how it works. I mean, the Bible works. Lives are changed by God's Word, and it suggests again that it's true. Now, I believe when you put these things together, you get to a level of evidence that to me rises to the level of a proof. I'm convinced it's true. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. But it is important that we resolve this for ourselves. I can't resolve it for you, and again, I acknowledge it takes a little faith, but it's important that we resolve this for ourselves because the Bible is filled with answers to life's greatest questions and there are dozens and dozens of those questions and they're all found in the pages of the bible questions like how did we get here you know what, what was the purpose of humanity why did why did god create us and and how did the rest of the universe come into being and what happens when we die i'd kind of like to know that wouldn't you And is there a place called heaven and hell? And if so, how do you get there? Wouldn't you like to know the answer to that question? These things are all found in the pages of the Bible. What is right? What is wrong? How are we supposed to treat people? What matters in life? What is the purpose behind pain and suffering? Is there a purpose behind it? Does it have meaning for a Christian? All these things are answered in the pages of the Bible. And so to me, there's no other book like it, and we need to put our trust and confidence in it as the Word of God. And it raises the question in my mind, where do you get your truth about things? Because I find as people have turned away from what the Bible says, they come up with very unbiblical ideas that I would argue aren't truth. Now today I want to focus on a story from the Old Testament involving a young king who ruled in Judah. And this guy had a perspective of the Bible that is just worth emulating. When he heard God's word, it so profoundly impacted him. It really changed the things he did from then on. He was very, very impacted by this, and God loved his response to it. God loved the fact that he received the Word of God for what it was, the Word of God, and God blessed them because of it. The guy we're going to talk about is a guy named Josiah, and his story is found in 2 Kings 22 and Second Chronicles 34. Let me set a little bit the context of this story because we're going to focus on, on his listening to God's Word in just a minute here. But Josiah was the 16th king of Judah. Now let me give you just a a little history lesson here. You remember that the man Israel or, or Jacob had 12 sons and these sons became the tribes of Israel. So there are 12 tribes of Israel. And in time, Israel came and appointed a king. God had picked this guy, Saul, to be the king over Israel. And then after them, after him, you remember David. David became king. And then after David, you remember Solomon. So these were the first three kings of Israel. And these three kings ruled over all 12 tribes. But after Solomon died, there was a civil war. And ten of the tribes pulled away. And they appointed their own king, a guy named Jeroboam, who was a wicked person. He was responsible for beginning to lead Israel astray from the worship of true God to idols. He had these calves made, just like in the Old Testament, where they worshipped and bowed before these calves. And other things, he led all of Israel astray. The ten whole tribes, they were called the northern tribes, or... They had their capital in Samaria. And then the civil war was against these other two tribes which were Judah and Benjamin. Now it was mostly Judah, and it's called Judah throughout the Old Testament, Judah this, but it included Benjamin, two tribes. And they had their own king, and Josiah was the 16th king of Judah. Now, because of the northern tribes, and I know I'm getting into a lot of kind of detail here, but because of the unfaithfulness of the northern tribes, God allowed this Assyrians to come in and in 722 uh, they came in and killed people and exiled everybody so that there was nothing left of northern Israel. About 100 years would pass after that and so for about 100 years, a little more than that the only king that remained over Israel was Judah, Judah's king. Their capital was Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. And so you got these kings of Judah, and for about 100 years, the other 10 tribes were gone, and you just had this guy or the different kings. Well, in time, Judah became just as bad or worse than Israel had been, the northern part. They started going after idols. They, they were doing things like sacrificing their own children and everything else. They became more and more wicked so that God said, you're done. Did you not learn anything from Samaria and what happened there? Josiah was appointed as king in a very turbulent time. In fact, his own father had been assassinated after ruling for only two years. And then the people of the land of Judah killed the assassins and then they're the ones who anointed Josiah. What's interesting about Josiah is that he was only eight years old when he became king and he became one of Israel's greatest kings. We have a summary of his kingship in Second Chronicles 34 and verse 2. Let me read it. We read, He did was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. If you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll see that the writers often will have a single statement about that king, whether it was a righteous king or not, and then follow it with the stories. And we find out about this guy. He was eight years old when he became king. He would end up ruling 31 years. But... He was someone who had a heart just like King David. Now, almost every king in Israel and Judah was compared to David. We know, of course, David made some mistakes. He sinned in some pretty big ways, right? I mean, he was guilty of adultery with Beersheba, or Bathsheba, I mean, and how her husband killed and things like that. But David knew God. He had a heart after God. He was seeking the ways of God and the word of God and he wanted to obey God and his life was wrapped up in God. And so all the kings basically were compared to him. And almost every king fell short. But when you get to this kid, an eight-year-old kid, he did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He was so faithful. I love that. And I love the fact he was only eight. It shows that you can really be passionate about your faith and your conviction even at a, a young age. Now the kings leading up to this Josiah had gotten more and more wicked. And so they had turned away from God. They were worshiping idols and false gods. Uh, they were murderers. Many of these kings killed innocent people so the God said that the land of Israel was just soaking with the blood of the innocent. It was just a wretched time. Many of them were into the occult. They worshiped or went, went and consulted mediums. And again, they sacrificed their own children. But this Josiah was different. So here's what Josiah did after he became king. And I don't know if it was immediately or within a year or whatever else. But what he did was he decided to go throughout the entire land of Judah and Israel and get rid of all the idols and all the altars, which no king had done it like this before. He was going to clean house. He's going to say, these are all false gods. And by the time this happened, by the way, with Josiah, idols were everywhere. There are are verses that indicate that there were idols or altars under every tall tree and on every hill they were everywhere. And this boy says, I'm getting rid of all of them. And it took many years to do it. He began to clean house. He even killed some of the priests of these false gods because that's what the Old Testament law said you're supposed to do. And he burned their bones on the altar to defile it once and for all. He had a heart to do all that. But a few years would pass, and he came up with another project. I want to read a little bit more about this king, but we switch over to 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 1 again. We read Josiah was 8 years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah. She was from Balskath he did what was right in the Lord's sight, he walked in the ways of his ancestor David, he did not turn to the right or to the left. So this is the other recording of the, of the exact same thing here. I want to make an observation though that it mentions his mother's name and this happens with a lot of the kings. Part of the reason for that is to establish the genealogy I suppose, but part of it is, is to honor the person. His mother, Jerida, had raised this boy right and she gets credit for that helping to restore proper worship. Now, when he was eight years old, he became king. For the next 18 years, he ruled and he cleaned things up. But the new project he came up with is is he wanted to begin fixing the temple. And at this point, the temple had come into such disrepair. There were actually false idols and, and altars in there, not of the God of Israel. The place was a mess. It had been torn down in various places, attacked in various places. He had in his heart to clean things up. And this is brings us to close to what I want to land on here in just a minute. Let's begin in verse 3. We read, in the 18th year of King Josiah, so now you presumably he's 26. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the court secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Mashulam, to the Lord's temple, saying, Go to Hilkiah the high priest, so that he may total up the money brought into the Lord's temple, the money from the doorkeepers have collected from the people. It's to be put into the hands of those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple." They, in turn, are to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. They're to give it to the carpenters, builders, and masons to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple. But no accounting is required from them for the money put into their hands, because they will work with integrity. Uh, In biblical times, as I mentioned a week or two ago, when you came to the temple, on at least three occasions you were to bring a gift an offering of some kind and so people have been doing that for years and so they had these big containers and people were dropping in their offerings well Josiah knew that there was a lot of money there and so he comes up with this plan let's go ahead and fix up the temple and we're not even going to require an accounting the workers we know they're honest just give the money to the workers let them go out and let's begin fixing this up Well, it was in the process of fixing this up that we come to the heart of what I want to talk about here today because they found a book, a book that had been hidden. And it was the book of the law, and likely this book had been written by Moses himself, penned by Moses. Now, I would guess that some of the priests, when they were enduring these godless kings, hid the book so that the kings wouldn't destroy it. I don't know, but people started cleaning things up and suddenly they find this, this old book. And it's, it's the Pentateuch. It'd be the first five books of the Old Testament. And they began to read it and realize we're in trouble. Now let's pick up that story beginning in verse 8 where we read Hilkiah, the high priest, told Shaphan, the court secretary, I've found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan, the court secretary, went to the king and reported, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the temple and have put it into the hand of those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. Then Shaphan, the court secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the of the king. Now this guy was like a, a secretary, kind of like a historian or whatever, and it, it seems to me that initially he doesn't recognize the value of this book. I mean, it comes into the king's presence and he says, you know, we went in there and people have been given the money and things are being fixed and, and they're buying things and everything's going along fine. Oh, and by the way, we found a book. And he began to read the book. It's Josiah's response to this that is worth imitating. Beginning in verse 11, we read, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Which, Please don't do that, by the way. Then he commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people and all Judah because the instruction in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. In biblical times, if someone expressed sorrow many times, it was in the tearing of clothes. And so he heard this book that was being read to him and his heart was so torn by it, which I think is what the illustration is about. You tear your clothing as a picture of my heart is torn over what I just heard. He was so profoundly impacted by it. He was grieved over it, and he wondered, is it too late? You know, God said, these things are going to happen. Is it too late? Now, what I want us to recognize about Josiah here is that he believed it. He believed what he heard. He believed it was true. He believed it was the word of God, words that needed to be paid attention to. And so he sent these leaders to this prophetess that lived in Jerusalem at the time, a woman named Huldah. And we read about her beginning in verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam, Akkor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Feels like I'm speaking another language there. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her. She said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me, which is Josiah, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the work of their hands. My wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. She confirmed his worth fears that it's coming and we know in about 20 years the Babylonians we know from history about 20 years would pass Babylonians were gonna come and attack Judah and cart them off as well so this was coming and this prophetess confirmed that but then she said something about this king beginning in verse 18, say to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, as for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, That they would become a desolation and a curse and because you have torn your clothes and wept before me i myself have heard you this is the lord's declaration or that could be translated thus says the lord i've heard you therefore i will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace your eyes will not see all the disaster that i am bringing on this place then they reported to the king Again, I love the way Josiah responded to the word of God and I think we can learn from his example. One thing we learned about it is how God viewed Josiah's response. How much God loved it when Josiah's heart was softened. Now, what did Josiah get right? I'd like to suggest at least three things he got right. First of all, he, he received and believed this as scripture. He, he, he believed it was the word of God he accepted it as, as the word of God a lot of people in his day did not just like a lot of people in our day today they don't believe the Bible is true they don't believe it's the word of God and they turned to other places to get their truth but when he heard it he knew in his heart that this was it now I know that the people of his day rejected the word of God because one of the things Josiah did was he sent the Levites who worked in the temple he sent them all over the land to teach the people He sent them to the cities to read the law and instruct the people, and they laughed at the Levites. The people did. We don't want to hear your Bible thumping. You know, that's how they felt about it, which a lot of people in our day are the same. But he believed it. He believed it was true. The second thing Josiah did was he was deeply impacted by what he heard. It went right to his heart. And so he tore his clothing and went into mourning. And God's word should impact us. One of the reasons I wanted to even talk about this, even though it's kind of a long story, a lot of verses or whatever, but I was reading this exact passage in my quiet time this past week, just sitting down, and my eyes welled up with tears when I saw his response. He was so impacted by the word of God, and I think we should be as well. And if we're not, maybe we need to ask God to help us Because our heart needs to be like soil where the seed can be planted and and grow. You know, Jesus talked about that. You remember how the the seed of God's word is planted. But the question is, what kind of soil do you have? And we immediately see the kind of soil Josiah had. It was the kind of soil that said, this is the word of God. And he took it directly to heart and impacted him deeply. And because of his humble response, God said, okay, you're not, this is going to happen, but not to you. You're going to die in peace. And God, in a sense, rewarded him for having this humble heart. And then there was a third thing about Josiah's response, and that is that he made a commitment to obey God's word from then on. And he insisted the people do the same. He led a major revival in Israel. Not it only lasted 20-some years again before another wicked king would come in and the Babylonians would end up taking over. But in 2nd Chronicles 34:29 we read so the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem they went up to the king's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem as well as the priests and the levites all the people from great to small he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. So now the king's reading it to the people. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. We're going to do it. He made an agreement, he made a covenant with God, which throughout Israel's history, there were seasons where the people of Israel made a covenant, an agreement, we will do what you ask us to do. And it would make a difference. And he made all the people agree to this thing as well. And so he becomes for us a wonderful example. First of all, because he believed the scriptures were the word of God. And I, I again, I encourage you to to wrestle with that. To me, the evidence is very, very clear. But even asking God to help you understand that that's what's true. He believed it. Secondly, he humbly responded to it. It, it, it had an impact on his heart and on his soul. And I would hope that would happen every week as we're exposed to God's word or when we're just sitting in our own... A bedroom, reading the Bible, that it would touch our heart. And third, he committed himself to fully obey it. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we really say, well, I love God, we're to do what he asked us to do. And they were willing to do that. Now, I believe that our view of this whole subject is a matter not of the intellect, but of the heart. And it does reveal things in our own hearts. So where are you at with this? Have you received the word of God as the word of God? And do you have a soft heart to receive it? And do you have a heart to say, God, if you say so, I'll do it. I'll obey. Because this is something that I'm confident pleases God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word that is so life-giving. You loved us so much as to reveal through your word who you are and what you're like and what people are like and our great need for a Savior that you sent your son even to be the living word to live among us and die in our place for our sin. But I want to thank you, Lord, that your word is true and it is life-giving. And it is, it is the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I just ask you, if we struggle even to accept that, that you'd give us a heart to say yes, to help us to see and understand because of this amazing gift that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.